Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm hearing you through the headphones. Yeah. If you could just introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do, and how long you've been doing it. My name is Rory O'Connor. I'm professor of health psychology at the University of Glasgow, where I lead the Suicidal Behaviour Research Laboratory. And I've been doing research into suicide and self-harm, I think it's for now 28 years. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and Sunday Times. I'm James Beale, Social Affairs Editor at The Times. Today, a conversation on suicide prevention. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Professor Rory O'Connor, who is a leading expert on suicide prevention. He featured in the final episode of Poison, the three-part podcast series about a 22-year-old British man who took his own life and the questions it raises. If you haven't listened to that series, it's available here on this feed. Now, my conversation with Professor O'Connor today is wide-ranging. He had some valuable insights into why suicide occurs, the stigma around it, the myths that get perpetuated, and, of course, importantly, how we can work to prevent people from taking their own lives. And clearly, the following podcast contains discussions about suicide. If you or anyone you know may be affected by this, there's a link in the episode notes to the Samaritans website and phone number. And do consider if you should continue listening. So let's rewind for a second. How did you first get into suicide research? If I rewind right back to the 1990s as an undergraduate student in Queen's University in Belfast between 1991 and 94. And as part of that psychology undergraduate degree, I did a dissertation on depression. And my plan was to move forward with that work into a PhD. Then as things often happen, serendipity plays its part. And I think it was in the summer of 1994, I got a phone call saying there was funding to do work on suicide. And when I thought about it, suicide was the most logical outcome because it is the most devastating outcome of mental health problems or, or mental illness or social disadvantage. I got funding then to do a PhD on suicide. And really, I haven't looked back ever since. It sort of changed my life, that call I got in the summer of 1994. Many years later, that man, the person who was my PhD supervisor, who without whom I would not be doing the work I do on suicide, he sadly took his own life. Again, maybe we'll talk about this during the podcast. I think 
one of the things I've tried to do more recently in my career is acknowledge the impact of my own lived experience of being twice bereaved by suicide, including the suicide of Noel, my, my supervisor. And there was another lady, Claire. Can you explain who she was and what happened to her? Claire, a really close friend. We'd studied together at Queen's. We had worked together and Claire had challenges and struggled with her mental health. And we discussed her mental health over the years. And and I wrote about this in, in my book, When It Is Darkest. And and really, it was helping me in, in some senses make sense of, of Claire's loss and um, and it's just sadly she lost her struggle to live in, in 2008. And at the time, I mean, the impact was just devastating. And I, initially in the days and weeks and months after Claire died, I just genuinely didn't know if I was going to be able to continue researching, working in the field because of suicide prevention, because every day then is a reminder of of my failure because I did, I, I felt that I personally let Claire down and her family down. And my feelings are very common and similar to other others who've lost those close to them to suicide, that sense of guilt. And then maybe just one last thing, James, to say, I think in many ways that impact of Claire's death and then Noel's death culminated me in part, I think, in going and seeking personal therapy, I think helped me make sense of that and make, make sense of who I am and my place in my world, I suppose. Your mum was a bit worried, I understand, when you went into suicide research. Is that right? Well, yes, like, I mean, like any parent, um, I think there was that fear of the unknown and recognising that working in such a sort of mentally taxing and potentially distressing area, she was really con- concerned about the impact on me because I don't do things by half and I get really immersed in what I do. And she knew at those early days that my plan was I would be interviewing people who were suicidal. So as part of my PhD in those early days, I interviewed people usually within 24 hours of a suicide attempt in hospital. And I also was immersed in analysing coroner's inquest papers. And that was really, really taxing. And so it's an understandable reaction from my mother. And, and something I reflected on more recently is I think almost every day since well, probably autumn of 1994, I've been thinking about suicide, trying to get some sense of what it feels like to be suicidal, get into the minds of somebody who is suicidal, so that ultimately we can have a better understanding and that better understanding, I hope, will lead to better intervention and prevention. And how is it meeting people who had just tried to take their own life? It's incredibly humbling and it's because you're being alongside somebody in their most darkest of times and and I remember in particular when I did this first um, in my in my twenties, I was really anxious and petrified because, like many people, I had many myths around suicide, and I probably did think about people who who were suicidal as being different from me, and that sort of othering probably helped me initially to sort of get through that those difficult early encounters. But what I've certainly realised now is that's the wrong way to think about it. And indeed, any one of us could become suicidal. I think it's a real honour and it's really humbling to be alongside somebody else in their distress. You touched upon your 2021 book, When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It. Can you describe what you set out to achieve with that book? I'd always had in my mind's eye that I would try and 
ensure that the work that I do and others do on suicide research and prevention move beyond the ivory towers of research. But I couldn't quite work out how I would do it. I didn't want to just write another textbook or research book on suicide. And because what I wanted to do was try to combine my personal experiences as well as other people's stories and who I've met on my journey and bringing that together with the research. And it's trying to convey a message of hope, hope that you can make a difference moving forward. And also hope that if you are struggling, if you're suicidal yourself, the book is trying to help people make sense of that pain. And then the last couple of things I'll just say in the aims of the book is was to try to dispel the myths around suicide. And then really some tips and guidance on talking to people who are suicidal, asking difficult questions, because so many of us are frightened of asking these difficult questions, both of people who are suicidal and also trying to engage with or speak to those who are bereaved by suicide. And we will come on to talk about some of the other myths a bit later on, but you believe that people who end their life by their own hand don't genuinely want to die, is that right? You've stated that what people want to do is end an unbearable mental pain. Can you talk me through that? That may be one of the sort of myths around suicide, this idea that suicide is a selfish act. And I just don't think it's helpful to view suicide as a selfish act because in the mind of the individual, they're often so overwhelmed by pain that the driver for the suicidal thoughts, it's not driven because they want to die, it's because they want the pain to end. So they're overwhelmed by this pain. If we think about physical pain, there is only a limit that we can withstand. And then when that limit becomes too much, in a physical context, we break, right, in some sense. And it's the same in the mental context. We only have a limited capacity of mental pain that we can withstand. And so when that pain gets too much, and that pain can manifest itself in different ways in different individuals, but we've reached our limit and we need that pain to end. And suicide for 6,000 people in the UK each year, 703,000 people globally each year who die by suicide, that suicide is the way of ending that pain. And that's why I think it's it's so so much more helpful to consider suicide as driven by ending pain rather than ending one's life. And then the countless suicide notes I've read over the years or speaking to people who are suicidal, often you get a sense of that pain, that they feel they're a burden on those around them. They feel that no matter what they do, they're a failure. And then if you focus in on that as the sort of key driver for suicidal thoughts, then the next question becomes is, well, what causes somebody to experience that sense of mental pain that becomes overwhelming? And that's where we then think about how do we intervene both at an individual level, at a group level, and crucially at a societal level. Now, if we look at national suicide prevention strategies and efforts that are made globally, yeah, there's definitely evidence that we can and we have made strides forward in preventing suicide on these national levels. But to prevent suicide on an individual level is very difficult. And indeed, our ability to predict suicide on an individual level is sadly no better than chance. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue trying. And when you say people feel like they're a burden, so they feel like they're helping their family by ending their own lives. Yes, sadly, sadly, and and so often the sad reality is that's that the individual who is 
suicidal thinks that they are, yeah, they're a burden on those around them. And actually, the world would be a better off place without them. So just imagine, think about the sort of the low levels of self-esteem, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of shame often associated with suicidal thoughts and suicidal behavior. And often, somebody may also be living with long-term mental health or physical health conditions or problems. And so actually think, counter to this idea that suicide, once again, is a selfish act, they think, actually, I'm doing those around me a favor. Because if I'm not there, I can't be causing them pain or the sort of burden of supporting them. And that's why it's absolutely heartbreaking when we think about suicide and suicide risk is because actually the person just feels so worthless often that actually they think the world would be better without them. But I've seen the quote before that these people are seeking a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Is, is that something you believe? Yeah, so this is a classic quote from the field of suicide research by one of the founders of modern suicidology, a, a, a man called Edwin Schneidman from the United States. So he coined that term of suicide being a permanent solution to often temporary problems. What it highlights is often the tunnel vision that individuals who are suicidal are experiencing, or that tunnel vision, or we, in sort of psychological terms, we talk about it as cognitive constriction. So the issue with tunnel vision is, as the name suggests, it's like having blinkers on. You don't see an alternative. So suicide is also the ultimate form of social problem solving. And if you, have, if you have tunnel vision, you're much more likely to see suicide as the only option, as the only way of ending your pain. And if you look at the research, the research shows that people who are suicidal are not as effective at social problem solving as somebody who's not suicidal. And so what you think about some of the interventions or supports for those who are vulnerable, those who are suicidal, are often problem solving interventions. Cognitive behavioral therapy, safety planning, these are all psychological or psychosocial interventions which help somebody cope with the pain and hopefully think of alternatives which are not suicide as a way of ending that pain. And when you speak to bereaved family members, what's the common reaction to the death of a loved one? There are many common features when you're bereaved by suicide, but it's worth remembering that every bereavement is unique. It's like any experience, it's unique. Now, but those common features often include, of course, like shock, shame, guilt. And guilt's a real issue. Um, what could you have done differently? Why couldn't I have done more to save them? But what is really important to bear in mind if, if you are bereaved by suicide is none of us can be held responsible for the actions of another individual. And that the factors that lead to suicide are so complex. There's never is it simply one factor. But it's also recognizing that as we move forward, that the sense of that grief will change. We'll never be the person we were before the bereavement. And what people who are bereaved often talk to me about is moving forward. It's not moving on, it's moving forward, it's stepping forward. Every day you're trying to step forward, every hour you're trying to step forward, and then hopefully those days become weeks and months and things hopefully get a bit better. But it's recognizing that your responses are natural and normal. And it's an important to acknowledge that. Your feelings of guilt, of anger often as well. How could this person do this to me? This loved one do this to me? These are all normal reactions. And crucially, if you are struggling, there is help and support out there. It's not 
it's not consistently delivered across the country. But I would urge you, please contact your GP and your GP will, will be able to let you know what support is available in your area. But also, I'd also encourage people, to, they're, they're really amazing suicide bereavement organizations, one being SOBS, which is Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide, which is a national organization. So please, please reach out. I mean, is there anything we can do to, to stop these feelings that stem from a death of a loved one? Or is it a case of just getting through them? If you're somebody who lo- who's a loved one has lost somebody to suicide or a friend or a colleague, try to be alongside that person in their grief. So at some stages, the person who's bereaved maybe doesn't want to talk, but other times they may want to talk. So it's just um, letting that person know that you're always there for them if and when they need to speak. And the other thing is recognising people who are, um, so who are close to those who have died by suicide or employers or are, are often frightened of what you should say. And I think my advice, again, as somebody who's bereaved by suicide and also speaking to lots of people who are bereaved is as long as you are compassionate, non-judgmental, and recognise the pain the person's going through, just a sense of compassion, you're unlikely to do any harm. And when making this podcast, Rory, in the first episode, I say when it comes to suicide, I believe it's never too late to talk to someone and change their mind. I presume I'm right in saying that. Absolutely. Suicide is preventable right up until the final moment. Now, I know that's not much comfort to those who are bereaved by suicide. Because certainly my experience of people who are suicidal over the years, they struggle with understanding why they feel the way they do. And at the heart of the book is a model of suicide that I've developed, which is this framework to help us understand at least two things. One is the emergence of suicidal thoughts. Why is it that suicidal thoughts emerge in some of us and not others? And then crucially, the second part is, thankfully, most people who have thoughts of suicide don't act on their thoughts. And so the the model also tries to understand who is more likely to cross a precipice from thinking about suicide to acting on their thoughts or sadly dying by suicide. The reason I say it's important to recognise that, yes, suicide is preventable up until the last moment is, we know from work on safety planning. And safety planning is this very simple intervention. It's a six-step intervention in which we try to get people to identify the warning signs that a suicidal crisis might be escalating. And then steps two through to five are about helping, working collaboratively with the person who's suicidal or who has previously been suicidal to to think about who they can contact either to distract them as the crisis is escalating or someone or somewhere they can go to if they really think, I can't keep myself safe. And that includes an emergency response. And then step six is is trying to think about keeping your environment safe. If you've thought of a particular method of suicide, this is helping us in advance of the crisis think about how can you increase the distance between you and that method so that when you're acutely suicidal, you don't act on your thoughts. Now, safety planning has been associated with a reduction and suicide risk and suicidal behaviour over time. But it's worth remembering that safety planning is only one type of intervention, one part of the complex puzzle of preventing suicide. What's absolutely fundamental is that the people who have mental health problems get the help that they need 
when they need it. And one of my concerns, especially as we now recover from the pandemic, is that the waiting list for mental health services are still too long, especially child and adolescent mental health services. In many cases, young people who are suicidal can still wait over 12 months to get the help and support they need. That is fundamentally unacceptable. It is unethical and we need to do more. There's been a lot, a lot of talk about levelling up between physical health services and mental health services. Yes, we've made some progress, but we've a long, long way to go. I contacted the Department of Health and Social Care and put Professor O'Connor's concerns to them. They told me that they were working hard to reduce the number of suicides and will publish a new national suicide prevention strategy later this year. They also said they're investing an extra £2.3 billion a year into mental health services, which will help an additional 2 million people to access NHS-funded mental health support by 2024. Is talking about suicide helpful, Rory? I mean, you talk in your book about the big S in a way that people used to talk about the big C when referring to cancer. Do we still have a stigma around suicide? Absolutely. We've made some progress, some destigmatization around mental health and some around suicide. Talking about suicide in a way which recognises that there is a future, that the suicidal thoughts will abate, they will recede, and the possibility for a future which is fulfilling and without suicidal thoughts is possible. The number of times I've heard over the years that people have said that a friend or a colleague just happened at the right moment to say to them, are you doing okay? You don't seem to be yourself. Are you struggling? And that started a conversation, which in many cases was life-saving. So I would really encourage people, if you are concerned about those close to you, family members, friends, colleagues, please ask them whether they're suicidal or whether they're, they're really struggling and always ask twice. And that asking twice is important because as we all know, if somebody asks you, how are you doing? Your immediate first response is, I'm fine. Ask it again. That helps the person recognize that actually maybe you do want to know the answer. And, and then in the book, actually, I talk a lot about tips on how you could go about asking these questions. And in relation to the stigma around talking about suicide, why does that still exist? I, I think it's related. To, again, it's complex. That's that question is complex. But in part, it's related, related to our own fears about the unknown. And if you've never been suicidal, it's very difficult for you to make sense of how somebody could be suicidal. And also there is something to do with this othering, this idea that people who are, become suicidal are different from me. And if it's different, it's in some way abnormal, and that that then adds to the stigma. Whereas the reality is that we're all on a continuum of mental health. We move from having good and positive mental health right through then to those who are really at the other end of that, of that spectrum who are really struggling daily to stay alive. And, and so I think we can tackle the sort of stereotypes around people with mental health problems, that will move us forward and hopefully promoting more positive and wide-ranging conversations.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've spoken a bit about myths, but let me pick a few that I think are relevant to the podcast we've been making. The first one is that all suicidal people are depressed or mentally ill. Could you talk about that myth? That's a complicated one, because in the Western world, our general consensus is that the key driver to people dying by suicide is mental illness. And yes, for many, many people, especially in Western countries or high-income countries, there's an often cited statistic that 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental illness. I don't think it's quite as high as 90%, but I don't dispute that there's a strong relationship. But that doesn't help us understand which individuals more likely to die. And I often cite this statistic, which is, although there's a strong relationship, if I flip it around and ask myself, what percentage of people who are treated for depression take their own life? The answer is very different from the 90% I just mentioned. It's about 4%. About 4% of people who are treated for depression end their life. So what that suggests then is the overwhelming majority of people with mental health problems, in this case depression, never become suicidal and never die by suicide. And asking about suicide, this idea that that somehow plants the idea of suicide in someone's head... Can you talk about that myth for us? There's absolutely no evidence at all that asking the question plants the idea in people's head. And for sadly, for years and years and years, speaking to loved ones, speaking to health professionals, they believe that. Whereas there is evidence that by asking that question, it can be the start of a life-saving conversation. So please, in short, if you are concerned that somebody is struggling, please ask them directly whether they're suicidal. Another myth that we've come across is that improvement in emotional state means lessened suicide risk. Yeah, so I write about this again in the book. And the reason I think it's important to include that is over many years, sadly, I had loved ones and mental health professionals who were falsely reassured because somebody that they knew or loved 
a loved one or somebody in, under their care, it seemed as if their mood had improved and that they felt the person was at less risk. And then in the days or weeks later, the person sadly died by suicide. So the reason I'm, it's important to highlight, highlight that is because what we think happens is if somebody is overwhelmed by pain, if in the depths of the depressive episode, for example, the person resolves that actually the solution to my problems is to take my own life, our fear is that because they've found a solution to their problems, a way of ending their pain, their mood starts to lift. And the fear then is as the mood lifts, the sort of cognitive capacity to plan and carry out the suicidal act then is increased because the person actually has the capacity to carry it out. So the key message then is, if there is unexplained improvement in mood, please check in with the person. A suicide is caused by a single factor. This is obviously something that we in the media have to be careful about when reporting on suicide. And it's obviously a myth that you've come across as well. It's absolutely crystal clear to me that suicide is not caused by a single factor. Now, sometimes if you're an outsider looking in, it looks as if that's the case. Over many years, I've been frustrated by, as you mentioned, the media reporting, some of the media reporting, for example, around bullying and suicide, as if bullying is the single reason why somebody takes their own life. Like, bullying is devastating, and it can be part of the complex puzzle to suicide, but usually when we look at the relationship between bullying and suicide risk, it's the impact of bullying on somebody who's already vulnerable. And that's where it's particularly pernicious. So I would never dismiss these individual factors as being important, and that could be bullying, it could be social media, whatever the factor it is. It's recognizing that it's a perfect storm of factors that usually comes together in a single individual, which is a driver for suicide risk. And often those drivers are hidden. And that's part of the problem, and indeed, why it's so important that we further destigmatize mental health problems and suicide. And how about another myth that suicidal behavior is motivated by attention seeking? This one, I think it's becoming less common. But certainly I remember when I was starting out in the field in the 1990s, it was very, very common. People would talk about self-injury or any form of suicide attempts as, and it usually was prefaced with, it's only attention-seeking as a way of minimizing the behavior. I agree in one level that the person is trying to draw attention to their pain. So on that level, it's true. That's not a myth. But the problematic bit is, is when we use attention seeking in a pejorative, negative way. And so I think it's much more helpful to talk about this as suicidal behavior, as an individual who engages in suicidal behavior as attention needing. And I often think about, ask yourself the question, how much pain must you be suffering if you're willing to inflict harm on yourself? I think that's a really important question to ask. And indeed, I remember being really struck by a study we did some years ago with young people with adolescents. And I remember one of the young people saying to us in the survey, when we asked them why they self-harmed, and one of them said, I'm trying to take the pain, my emotional pain, the pain that's inside my head to my arm. Just think about that really powerful description of how an individual, a young person who we too often dismiss 
young people's views and also reminding ourselves of this idea of differentiating between physical and mental health or your physical pain and your mental pain. They're interrelinked. We're all one human being and one health in one body. And um, the thought that when someone becomes suicidal, they will always remain suicidal, the sort of idea that, that it becomes inevitable after a while. Talk me through how that is an, another one of your myths. Uh, that, again, it's completely a myth. Is it um, for many people who are suicidal, we know suicidal thoughts come in waves of intensity. And I know from our research studies often that people could be acutely suicidal for a period of time, and maybe they may attempt suicide in a number of occasions in that acute window. But so many times I've come across people who have come to come back to me, people maybe who have taken part in some of our studies in the past, or people who have just have emailed me or, or, or written to me to tell me that they remember that in that depth of their suicidal crisis, they thought they would never recover. And so many of them have come back and said, well, actually, that's not the case. Even though I couldn't see it then, I know it now. And that's why I really urge people, if you are listening to this and you're struggling, or if you're supporting somebody who's struggling, there will be a time when the suicidal thoughts dissipate, they relent, they disappear, and you will live a more fulfilled life. So please, I know it's difficult at the moment, if you're in the moment of crisis, it can be difficult to hold on, but please, please do. Life is worth living, and there are better times ahead, and it won't be as dark. There is light ahead. I've been looking at the fact that there are young people, particularly young adults, in their early 20s, and in the case of our investigation, even a teenager dying by suicide. Are young people more susceptible or more at risk? One of the things we've known before the pandemic that, this, that the suicide rates in young people have been increasing, sadly, really sadly. So if we look at the, the sort of su the suicide statistics, the stark reality is that before puberty, suicide is rare. But then as you hit puberty and through into your early 20s, that's where you start to see those teenage years, that's the steepest increase an onset of mental health problems, the steepest increase in onset of self-harm, suicidal behaviour. And that's in part because adolescence and young adulthood is a really turbulent time. We know the brain is still developing until your mid-twenties. Now, that's something we didn't know 15 years ago. And so what we think in part represents that turbulence of adolescence and young adulthood is that mismatch between your emotional development and your sort of cognitive development, your capacity to plan and solve your emotional and social problems. And I suppose the rise of social media in the online world has had an effect on suicidal feelings. Indeed, the social media march must have tracked your career, really, in, in your research. Can you talk to us about the relationship between social media and people's mental health? I am a big advocate of ensuring that we regulate social media organizations and we ensure that harmful content is as far as possible removed. But I think it's important that we put in the context the relationship between social media and suicide risk. As somebody who's already vulnerable, social media can be devastating. 
absolutely devastating. What, what we need to do is think about trying to harness social media for the good. So if we think about, there's been a number of reviews that have been published in recent years. And those reviews make it very clear that if you speak to people who have been suicidal, young people who have been suicidal, yes, some will, will, will mention harmful impact, but others will mention the protective impact, the protective effects of social media, feeling connected with others and a way of, of accessing support. So my message is, yes, we have to, with the, um, in the UK, obviously, there's the online harms bill going through Parliament. And I think it's really important that harmful content and the algorithms which are um, problematic, algorithms which are continually lead to the spiraling of negative content. We need to tackle all of those issues. Of course we do. But social media is only one aspect of it. And I think we need to look at social media in the broader context of inequality, the broader context of inadequate mental health services, and this broader issue around stigmatization around mental health. And does the age of young adults and teenagers affect how you might deal with suicide prevention compared to older generations? Oh, certainly, certainly. And, and we need to do more in schools, and, but in a way which is safe. So we need to be promoting mental health, ensuring that there are better joined up services between schools and mental, and mental health services. Uh, that's absolutely key. And indeed, in Scotland, actually, we're, we've been pioneering what's known as the distress brief intervention approach. So it's like an early intervention idea that people who are in distress if, so if anybody's in distress and comes into contact with the police, with the emergency department, the GP, in certain areas of Scotland, they will get offered within 24 hours up to 14 days of dedicated support. In our podcast series, we've spoken to David Parfit, the father of a 22-year-old university student called Tom Parfit, who took his own life. He felt guilty about his son's death. Is that common? Absolutely. The sad reality is that any of us who lose a loved one to suicide, guilt is too often one of the emotions that we feel. Guilt is understandable, but we should never, we can't be held responsible for the actions of another individual. The reality is there's so many different factors lead to suicide and it's so difficult to predict on an individual level. So please, please be much more compassionate towards yourself. And during this podcast series, I tracked down a man called Kenneth Law, who was selling a substance online that people are buying. I believe his website should be taken down. Am I right in thinking this? And how important is it to limit these methods? It's very important to limit these methods. But the challenge is, no sooner do they get taken down and maybe they pop up somewhere else. So I think it's really important we do whatever we can to restrict access to these lethal means. And especially in the context you've just mentioned of access to vulnerable people, I'm 100% behind that, but it's a really challenging, a challenging ask. Do you think we're going after the symptom, not the cause with that? Or do you, do you think it's important to do both, I guess? Oh, you have to do both. What's absolutely abundantly clear is suicide prevention takes a whole range of interventions. If you look at the evidence base for what works to prevent suicide, large-scale public health interventions like restricting access to the means of suicide, for example, been shown to be, have the strongest evidence base. It takes prevention, intervention, and postvention, bring those all together. That's what suicide prevention is about. And we've spoken to one expert who says that barriers are important. So if you've got a suicide spot, 
like a bridge, for example, having a fence or a barrier is closing down an avenue where suicidal people could go. Is it a similar analogy for someone selling a substance on a website and having that website closed down? If we look at the evidence on these public health interventions where you restrict access to the means at an area of high concern, that has been shown to be associated with reduced suicide. So if you extend that to websites, the chances are that will be effective. So yes is a short answer. These are anything which restricts access, which increases the distance psychologically, environmentally, structurally to a method of suicide will save lives. Methods of suicide, we need to do as much of that as possible. And slightly wider in general, it's obviously an extremely sensitive subject talking about suicide. But do you think the Times is right to report on these issues? I think it's a really important time to be thinking and and talking about suicide prevention more generally because my concern now is that we're going through this cost of living crisis and potentially an economic recession. We know from previous recessions, times of recession are associated with increased suicide risk. And I think we're in unusual times. We've come through the pandemic. And although there have been, thankfully, overall, Broadly speaking, the suicide rates did not increase during the pandemic. Our concern is there are some signals of increases in suicide are starting to be reported. There's clear evidence now during the pandemic that young children and adolescents, there's an increase in suicide attempts. And so my fear is now that with this cost of living crisis and the broader economic shock, this is precisely the time that we should be focusing on preventing suicide and ensuring that governments are prioritising suicide as the top, top priority. And and when making this podcast, we were very conscious of the language used. How important is language when talking about suicide? It's really important. Um, Understandably, suicide is a really sensitive topic. And the way we've spoken about or talked about suicide has changed in recent years. The Media guidance, the media reporting guidelines argue and say that we shouldn't say that somebody committed suicide. And I support that because using the language of committing suicide harks back to a time in our country in which suicide was criminalised. And I've met so many loved ones who are bereaved by suicide who have really been, I find it really difficult to hear that term. And and remember, in many countries of the world, suicide is still a criminal offence. So we're still trying to decriminalise it in many countries, but it remains a criminal offence. So my message is trying to avoid terms that are maybe um, just cause distress and those who have either been suicidal themselves or who have been bereaved by suicide. And for, uh, is for anyone listening to this conversation, what's the one message you'd like them to take away? Suicide is complex. Any one of us could become suicidal. And that the factors that lead to suicide are unique to all of us. But try and think about suicide as this sense of being trapped by mental pain. If it's you yourself who's feeling suicidal, hopefully that will help you make sense of why you feel the way you do and get help and support. Or if you are supporting somebody who's suicidal, or if you've sadly been bereaved by suicide, trying to understand that sense of entrapment, that sense of defeat that often is associated with suicide risk will help help you, I hope, make sense of your loss. 
And that crucially, lastly, if you have been bereaved by suicide, my heart goes out to you and I really please try and be compassionate towards yourself, look after yourself and be less less critical of yourself and that hopefully each step moving forward, each day moving forward will be a bit easier. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, James Beale, the social affairs editor at The Times, and my guest, Professor Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology at the University of Glasgow. I've put a link to Professor O'Connor's latest book in the description notes of this podcast. The producers today were Will Rowe and Sam Chantarasak. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. Please remember, if you or anyone you know may have been affected by this episode, there is a link to the Samaritans website and phone number in the episode description notes. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.